0: Welcome everybody to the Centre for European Reform podcast. Today we're going to be talking about fiscal rules, everyone's favorite subject, but much more exciting than fiscal rules is the fact that I'm introducing our new economist who's going to be leading on macro for us, Sonder Tordois. He joined from the European Central Bank. He has, until very recently, been stationed in Washington, D.C. as part of the ECB's liaison team with the IMF. And he's going to be heading up our Berlin office. So welcome, Sonder. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. So, yes, we're going to be talking about the fiscal rules. I mean, I I remember back in 2020, the CER had a webinar with Pascal Donahue Islands, Finance minister and president of the Eurogroup. And and he said they were going to start the reform discussion of the European fiscal rules. Then he, i.e., 2020, he hoped for proposals in 2021. And here we are at the end of 2022, and the Commission is only finally doing this. COVID lasted longer than we'd hoped, and then Putin's invasion, and there was just no hope of holding countries to or reinstituting fiscal rules during these crises. And I think this should prompt us to ask whether the rules were all wrong anyway and uh, they didn't survive contact. With admittedly pretty pretty big crises um, and had to be suspended. But even before the pandemic, they weren't really being followed. And Sonda's going to tell us why the rules matter, what the Commission's proposals are, whether they're going to work. And the the first question that we're going to ask is why are the rules suddenly important again, Sonda? I mean, they've always been contentious. They were suspended in the pandemic. The Commission's made some proposals. Why now?
1: Yeah, that's that's of course the right place to start. And the reason why we care about the fiscal rules now. Now is as exactly as you pointed out, that after a pandemic and an ongoing war, debt levels in Europe are relatively high in a, in a number of countries. But maybe it's good to first indeed go back to intellectually, why, why do we have fiscal rules in the first place? And for Europe and for the Eurozone in particular, the case... For intervention by Brussels in national fiscal policy is essentially rooted in having a union of interwoven economies that share a currency, in which destabilizing national debt dynamics may create contagion effects for other countries or make the job for the European Central Bank a lot more difficult. So, sound. Countercyclical cyclical fiscal policies are important. Uh, debt levels that are contained and, and stable are important. And it's also important for the countries to sort of steer fiscal policy in the right direction and in, and in a coordinated way. And that was already identified before the establishment of the euro in the in the so-called the report as a key priority. And whether you like it or not, most fiscal policy in Europe remains at the na- national level. I mean, the EU budget is only 1% of EU GDP. The Pandemic Recovery Fund adds a few percentage points of EU spending for a number of countries until 2026. But... Governments in the Eurozone tend to comprise between 40 and 50 percent of their GDP. So national fiscal policy is still a super important policy lever. And having common rules and a common understanding to manage those national policies is key. And that's where the proposal from the Commission comes in.
0: Thanks. That's a super helpful bit of background. I mean, obviously, the Commission's proposals are proposals for reform. And I think it's fair to say that everybody found the old fiscal rules pretty unsatisfactory. Those struggling with high debt levels or with low growth because they were a bit of a straitjacket, more hawkish northern countries, because quite often they weren't really stuck to. And, you know, we had, I remember going back to 2010, 2011, the debate over the fiscal compact, which strengthened and reformed the pre-existing fiscal rules, which had been instituted at the beginning of the euro. And, you know, they embedded these new rules during the Euro crisis into an intergovernmental treaty. So, you know, it's a treaty, these things are supposed to endure, but now they're being reformed. And perhaps you could just tell us what's wrong with the old fiscal rules, why people didn't like them, and why exactly we're going down the reform process now.
1: Right, exactly. And depending on who you ask, the rules are indeed simultaneously portrayed as a straitjacket that strangled southern European economies, and undermine public investment or as a toothless tiger that had no real effect. And given the complexity that's been added over the years, maybe as an incomprehensible regulatory labyrinth that only a few experts in the commission services fully understand and these various points of criticism do point to some drawbacks on the the pre-pandemic rule set which is still under the general escape clause so the rules are switched off until 2024 and the commission is now using that that time space to come up with reform proposals and the criticism from let's say more independent commentators like the european fiscal board or the international monetary fund points essentially to four four major drawbacks of the way the rules were originally conceived when the euro was introduced and the way they were reformed in the eurozone crisis. The, the first problem is that the rules tend to be quite procyclical. So it's estimates of fiscal policy space, which gives guidance and guardrails for national governments and their parliaments, relies on indicators that tend to overestimate fiscal space in boom times and underestimate underestimate fiscal space in bad times. So that results in too much spending in an upturn and too little in a downturn, which is the the exact opposite of what you want. The the second issue is that the rules have been seen as harming public investment, uh, in particular during recessions when governments are put under pressure to comply with the rules they tend to cut back on investment because it's politically easier to do so but of course that that goes at the expense of long-term growth a a third issue is that debt levels have been on an increasing trajectory in many countries this is not only the case for Europe of course this also happened especially in the pandemic also in the US in the United Kingdom and other jurisdictions but there is a lot of divergence across Europe with some countries complying not so well with the rules as others And and that's the fourth issue is just generally compliance with the various commitments in the rules has been rather poor over over the, the time span of the rules. It varies by country, but there aren't many countries that have at all times complied with all rules. And so basically the commission is trying to solve these longer standing issues, these four dimensions, and also address the fact that if they would apply the rules by the letter of the law today in an era of high public debt across the board, they would have to impose terribly harsh austerity. And so the political challenge follows in a way from that. Uh, And that's the grand bargain that needs to take place is how, how do we get economically sensible rules that are not overly austere and allow high debt countries to gradually reduce their debt in return for a better application of the rule, which is important for low debt countries that don't want to deal with spillovers uh, from their neighbours.
0: Okay, great. That's, that's a fantastic summary of what was wrong with the old ones. And you really set up the next question well, which is, could you just take us through, in the most kind of layman's terms way possible, how the Commission wants to reform the rules?
1: Right. So I think that they're basically introducing a number of paradigm shifts, if you will. And so the first is that they see much longer adjustment periods for public debt to decline than what would have been the case under the old system. The old system basically used a 12 to 18 month cycle to give guidance to member states on their fiscal policy, on their deficits, on their debts. Under the new proposal, the commission wants countries to undertake a four year fiscal adjustment path, which then leads to outcomes for the 10 years following. So you're sort of on a 14 year horizon. And the treatment is different for three groups of countries based on the riskiness of their debt. And so they're they're basically creating a group a grouping of three and then following up with individual countries depending on what group they're in and what their particular setup looks like. The the second and related shift is that instead of relying solely on deficits or on so-called structural balances, which are hard to estimate. They're going to look at debt sustainability analysis. And and this is really bread and butter for the IMF, for example, that uses these types of analysis for countries that they provide support with throughout the world. But the commission and the ESM and the ECB also do debt sustainability analysis. And these are useful but tricky because they lay out if a government is able to meet all current and future payment obligations based on fiscal macro and financial variables under very scenarios over a typically long period, so let's say a 10-year period, period. The third paradigm shift is that expenditure becomes the only relevant indicator. So rather than looking at using very complicated formulas to look at where an economy is in the cycle to determine how much of the spending is cyclical or structural, they look really at the observable expenditure path that a country will take, and that's what they will hold the countries to. And then finally, and probably most controversially, the commission will take a much stronger role in so-called fiscal So rather than having more horizontal discussions across the countries and horizontal rules, they will engage bilaterally with countries to see what their path looks like. And their countries can also bring in the growth dimension. So they can say, I have high debt. I want not a four-year path, but a seven-year path uh, because I'm going to undertake structural reforms and public investment. So they can basically trade in these discussions with the commission, trade more time in exchange for reforms and public investment. Now, what, what happens if a country doesn't comply, right? Because that's always one of the key questions. How do you enforce the agreed pathways between the commission and the country? In that case, they can open so-called excessive deficit procedure, uh, which is also the case under the current system, which may then ultimately, if the country doesn't adjust its fiscal course, again, based on the expenditure path, that may lead to sanctions or their payouts from EU budget or from the recovery fund could be halted. And the commission adds two new enforcement mechanisms. One is the possibility of having smaller financial sanctions under the idea that those would be easier to actually put in place. And, and a sort of reputational shaming so that a finance minister would have to come to the European Parliament to explain why his or her country failed to comply with the rules. So that's in a nutshell is the commission proposal. What's missing and I think is rather fundamental is that they haven't actually proposed a European fiscal capacity to complement the rules. But the two are in many ways related because access to a fiscal capacity could be a powerful commitment device for governments uh, and reduce some of the pressure that governments face to, for example, spend on the green transition. But the reverse is, of course, also true that having European fiscal instruments may lead some countries to kick back on their debt reduction targets because they feel like they are covered by Europe. So that's the moral hazard point. But it's a major omission not to cover that flank, particularly against the backdrop of a climate crisis and a war. And leads also to some issues that we can discuss further on how the commission would actually apply the rules if you don't have the carrot that a common fiscal capacity would bring to the table
0: i mean that's that was the question that i was immediately going to ask you in response on this enforcement question because nobody's ever been fined for breaking the fiscal rules and france and germany broke them in the early 2000s and multiple countries broke them since the euro crisis without really any sanction from the commission whatsoever so the new proposals are okay well we're going to we'd like to be able to suspend payments I guess for the most egregious breaking of the rules and, and naming and shaming but it just doesn't seem realistic that given the fact that we've got 20 odd years of evidence now, it seems unrealistic that powerful member states are going to be sanctioned by the commission for breaking these rules. Is that unfair?
1: No, I think I think that's totally fair. Even this idea of smaller sanctions, and just to give you a sense, I mean, sanctions under the old system could go up to 0.5% of GDP, just the sanctions part, and then there were a few other additions. But the, r- the real reason why sanctions aren't applied isn't only because of the commission. It's also because the council, so the member states themselves, often backed out of pulling the trigger. And there were, there have been a few cases over the years where the commission was moving in the direction of sanctions, but then the council got, including Germany by the way, got cold feet. This is what happened in 2016 when Spain and Portugal broke the rules. And it was Wolfgang Schäuble of all people who ultimately pulled the plug on applying sanctions. And this points to a deeper political issue, which is that for countries and the commission, It's quite difficult to sanction a sovereign European country to do a type of fiscal policy that it wants to do, which its parliament wants to do. And there's a very high cost to embarrassing a country by giving them a sanction because those are the same countries that they share the council with that they have to take decisions on migration on climate on foreign policy so clearly there's a wider political problem with the with the entire notion of sanctions which is why i think this idea of smaller sanctions or naming and shaming is a bit little to go on and it also problematizes the fact that the commission is pulling more power to itself in terms of applying the rules which in principle could work to have a stronger let's say executive role but then they would have to have some instruments to actually force compliance and with the recovery instruments which is clearly a sort of blueprint or a template for this kind of surveillance. They have the carrots because they have billions lying around and they have milestones that they can keep countries to. But after 2026, those are gone and so they will no longer have the carrot. So that leads to this whole question of how could the enforcement actually work given this history of 20 years of non-applying of sanctions.
0: Thank you. That's great. I mean, apart from the enforcement issue, I I wonder if you could just say a few words about the politics. So the reception of these rules in, you know, the sort of the key player member states, particularly, I guess, in more, more hawkish northern European member states, such as Germany and the Netherlands, and also any, you know, any other question marks about the way that the rules work technically and whether they're likely to be any better than the previous set. So if you could give us a a bit of a sense on both of those, the politics and technicalities.
1: Maybe let me just briefly touch on a few technical points and Mm. as a good segue into the politics. So one, I think smart adjustment are these longer adjustment periods. And I think there is political consensus in Europe, including in The Hague and Berlin, that doing very radical fiscal adjustment now or imposing that on high debt countries is a bad idea. So I think there is some support for having longer adjustment periods because it economically makes sense and politically as well. And also this transformation towards expenditure as the leading indicator makes some sense. And there's a lot of experts who prefer that because a finance minister can actually look at his expenditure patents. See where he stands versus what Brussels is, has given him or her as guardrails. Whereas before, the operational targets were basically unobservable except by modeling, so that makes it very difficult to actually comply with the rules. Often, finance ministers—you hear this anecdotally—finance ministers would say, as their staff or as commission staff, "How can I see whether I comply? Because I can't follow it because it was based on these unobservable categories." So there are some smart evolutions in the proposal, but one one of the technical downsides, which also again is political is that it takes four to seven years before a country has to embark on a declining debt path and i think in fiscally more conservative countries like germany that that may not sit so well so concretely France, for example, which is in probably in the intermediate debt risk group with a debt to GDP ratio just below one hundred percent, could essentially wait four to seven years before really bringing down its debt level under this new proposal. And the question is, how would that be perceived by by some of the countries that are have wanted historically more strong enforcement? And, and a third technical issue, which again at the same time is political, is this reliance on these debt sustainability analyses. They may seem objective, but in many respects they are not because they were they are sort of a very long term prediction on the pathway of a government spending and revenue. And so they're very heavily assumptions driven. And the question is whether we want 19 or 27 bureaucrats in Brussels to argue over the debt sustainability of a specific country and the assumptions in the analysis, which could get very contentious. Whereas today they're arguing more in the abstract on on horizontal formulas, of course, bringing in their, their national interests. but it's a quite a different discussion. And that also puts the commission in a weird spot to, to say that a country's debt is, is or is not sustainable. But moving moving into the, the political sphere more broadly, I think the key issue will be the that the commission is will have a stronger role and more power. And I think that question is whether particularly Germany will be happy with that. And they, they may push back on that. So where, where I see the politics going is essentially that there are two landing zones. One is that a number of countries push for more horizontal rules again, so more codified rules that are transparent and where there's a sort of clearer comparability across countries with the idea that otherwise the commission would have too much discretion to apply this new framework to countries as they deem fit or the proposal as it stands will fly. But for that to work and for it to be palatable for Germany, it would probably need to think harder about these sanctions and this enforcement mechanism so that Berlin has the confidence that that Brussels will do what's necessary and that they have the tools to do so. So I think, that's essentially where the debate is headed and the question is a bit whether berlin doesn't play a double game where on the one hand they let the commission go ahead with this proposal but then take the fiscally hawkish high ground and criticize them or whether they engage really constructively and try to move towards one or two of these equilibria i've laid out one or two of these internally consistent landing zones
0: that's extremely helpful framing, I think. And just a final question, I guess, which is maybe maybe a bit difficult to answer, but I mean, I still feel a bit like, okay, we need to have this debate, I guess, but we're still in the midst of... you know, <laughs> massive crisis, war in Europe and massive energy price hikes and huge interventions by government. And so I just wonder if we're going to make any real progress while this is going on or, or whether you think that you know, we, there is the possibility of uh, some sort of agreements over the next year.
1: I mean, I think it will take time for sure. And I think it will probably it could go down to the 11th hour. But there is a clear deadline on it because the old rules come back at the beginning of 2024. And I don't think there's any willingness either on the part of the Commission or on the part of the members States to us keep the rules switched off any longer. So there there is a hard stop at the end of the negotiations, which provides a bit of a headache for the Netherlands, Germany, and maybe other countries that have traditionally been more on the fiscally hawkish side. Because if they block this proposal from going through, they will fall back into the old world, which is not one that they were happy with either. And maybe to mention in this context as well, that countries like Finland and others more on the eastern side of Europe that would be fiscally more hawkish, they their calculus may change Change, and they may be more compromising now that they feel the geopolitical stress from the east and so i would i'm cautiously optimistic that there will be a compromise of sorts it could be that it's a a smaller reform and that they for example just change in a more targeted way only the the debt reduction provisions under the existing rules uh, which are quite stringent and just loosen those so that would be a more targeted reform to deal with the acute issue at hand which of course in some sense would be a missed opportunity but the commission in my view has already missed an opportunity by not also making a proposal for for a central fiscal capacity for example a climate fund at the European level to help the green transition along which is in everybody's interest but it could at the same time complement the whole enforcement dimension of the system and so that that's based where I think the, the
0: political landscape stands. Wonderful. Thank you. Well, that, I mean, that's just about it. I ought to just say there's a couple of more in-depth looks at NextGen EU and relationship between fiscal rules and a, and a kind of central fiscal instruments on, a, on our website. One of them is by me and our colleague Elizabeth Cornago, which is why the recovery fund should be made permanent, which is a discussion of you know what the, what the kind of macro benefits might be, and then the and then the other one, whose title, of course, I'm banking on, um, is a piece by me in the summer about the European Central Bank and the concerns that they had about the fiscal framework in the context of potentially buying up Italian bonds in order to keep spreads down. In which I, in which I suggest that you know having some sort of centralized fiscal capacity is pretty good in terms of the carrot that the EU institutions have to encourage both the reform process and member states to. Re- remain on a, a sensible fiscal pathway. Sonder, thank you so much. Congratulations on your first podcast. You were absolutely brilliant, as ever. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Next time, I believe we're going to be talking about Hungary and Poland and EU funding, which is not an unrelated issue. Please rate us on iTunes or your podcast player. It helps other people find us. Unless you give us a, a terrible review, of course, please don't do that. And see you next time. Thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs>
1: Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.